the world in 20 minutes. Coming up the top stories tonight. Tito declared big cheese. Elvis Presley says aloha from Hawaii live via satellite. And Kerr Goddle's life snuffed out by fear of being gassed. Plus, coming up, we have live footage of the electric dinosaur having a pint in the local boozer. Those are the headlines. Have a nice day now, won't you? The news bang. Truth-seeking, fact-finding, and always finding the facts. The Blindness of Citizen. 1953. And we begin with a look at the political scene in Yugoslavia, where Josip Broz Tito, better known as Uncle Joe, has been elected president for the umpteenth time. Tito, who looks like Stalin's taller, more handsome brother, has promised to continue his policy of Titoism, a unique blend of communism and flamenco dancing. Tito first came to power in 1953 when he won a hotly contested game of Twister against rival candidate Slobodan Sloppy Drago. He led the Yugoslav Partisans, a popular dance troupe of the time, and later became president for life, or until he died trying to eat an entire ox in 1980. A list of heads of state from 1918 to 20 has been discovered in a Zagreb skip. Historians are perusing it now, but so far have only found two Slobodans, a Boris and an unidentified Milosh. The whereabouts of Marshal Tito's missing moustache remain a mystery. Omarihud, 1973. In a global first, Elvis Presley's Aloha from Hawaii concert was beamed live via satellite to audiences in Asia and Oceania today. The king of rock and roll's hips swiveled their way into living rooms across the region, causing mass hysteria and several reported cases of spontaneous combustion. The concert, which took place in 1973, was filmed on location in Hawaii, where Elvis had been exiled after biting a policeman's leg off. However, due to the vagaries of time zones and Colonel Tom Parker's shrewd business sense, it was shown live in the future. Europeans had to wait for a tape-delayed version because they were still setting their VCRs to PAL. Meanwhile, Americans had to make do with a watered-down TV special that carefully edited out any shots of Elvis's third nipple or his rant about the damn Illuminati lizard people. One eyewitness, Nigel Quiffenbush from Idaho, said, It was like nothing I've ever seen before or since. Elvis gyrated his way through hit after hit as if he were on Mars. Another bystander added, I think my wife fainted, but she always does that when she sees men in sequins. The rest, as they say, is history. Or at least an excuse for your dad to dust off his old records once a year. 1978. The world of logic is in mourning tonight, following the tragic death of Kurt Godel, a man so logical he couldn't even trust his own wife to boil an egg. Godel, who once proved that you can't prove anything, was found dead at his home in Austria-Hungary having starved to death after developing a fear of being poisoned. Neighbours described how the 71-year-old would pace the streets muttering equations to himself and accusing pigeons of spying on him. He was as mad as a box of frogs, said one local informant. He'd stand there for hours trying to prove Fermat's theorem on our front gate. Godel's paranoia reached fever pitch when his wife, Greta Topfugnugan, went away on a pottery course. He thought we were all out to get him, she sobbed through tears and uncooked sausages. I tried everything. Casseroles, lasagnas. But he just wouldn't eat it. The autopsy revealed Goddell had died from a combination of malnutrition and persecutory delusions. Ironic for a man who once said, 
The only way to avoid paradoxes is by not thinking about them. His last words were reportedly, I think therefore I don't exist, or do I? News bang, bringing truth to the masses, one stupid human at a time. And now, for a frosty forecast from the nation's most trusted meteorologist, Shakanaka Giles. Tomorrow, in the heart of winter, we're expecting a frosty reception from Mother Nature. The southeast will be as chilly as a penguin's picnic, with temperatures dropping low enough to freeze the brass off a monkey. Over in the Midlands, it'll be a grey day, the sky looking more sullen than a teenager denied Wi-Fi. Up north, brace yourselves for snow flurries that could turn the Pennines into a scene straight out of a snow globe, shaken, not stirred. And for Scotland, wrap up warmer than a haggis in a kilt. We're anticipating icy gusts sharp enough to slice through shortbread. In summary, brass monkeys, sullen skies, shaken landscapes, and haggis chilling winds. And that's all the weather. In a world still reeling from the shockwaves of the Great Recession, the year 2011 saw a revolution that would shake the foundations of North Africa. The winds of change swept across Tunisia, culminating in the dramatic exit of President Zine El Abidine Ben Ali. The nation was ablaze with unrest as protesters took to the streets, demanding an end to corruption and oppression. Their cries echoed through history, leading to a domino effect that would reshape the political landscape of the region. And today we stand on the precipice of history as we witness this turning point in global politics. Our reporter Brian Bastable is on location in Tunisia, ready to bring us up close and personal with this groundbreaking revolution. We find ourselves today in the sweltering heat of a land where revolutions are not just an old man's dream but a young girl's nightmare. This is Tunisia, a place where history doesn't repeat itself it simply punches you in the face until you scream for mercy. As I stand here amidst the smoldering ruins of what was once a thriving city center, I can feel the ghostly echoes of a revolution that has already happened, and yet still seems to be unfolding before our very eyes. The year is 2011. Tune into your radios and let us paint you a picture with words so vivid they could start their own wildfire on this scorched earth we call home. The air here is thick with dust kicked up by countless pairs of fleeing feet, some belonging to those who dared to defy their ruler, others carrying out his final orders as they ransack what remains of this once proud nation. And through it all, one man stands alone atop his crumbling throne, Zin El Abedin Ben Ali. President extraordinaire and master manipulator extraordinaire. But fear not, dear listeners, for even as we speak these words into existence, another force gathers strength beneath our very noses. Democracy, 
That beautiful monster born from chaos and fed by hope may soon claim its victory here in Tunisia, if only we have faith enough to keep fighting for what we know is rightfully ours. So strap yourselves in tight because today on Newsbang, Live War's own reporting special extravaganza spectacular news hour show thingamajig time. It's going to get bumpy, real bumpy. Brian Bastable signing off from downtown Tunisia. 1969. The year is 1969 and the USS Enterprise aircraft carrier is in the headlines for all the wrong reasons. A major fire and explosions have left 28 sailors dead, 314 injured, and 15 aircraft destroyed. The incident was triggered by a Zuni rocket detonation, which escalated into a chain reaction of explosions and damage to the ship. The cost of repairs and replacement of damaged aircraft amounts to a staggering 1 euro, 26 cents million. This historic vessel, known as the longest naval ship ever built, now stands as a testament to both human ingenuity and its potential for catastrophic error. Ken Shit will now delve deeper into this dramatic tale of maritime misfortune. The world is on fire, not literally, but close enough. Tonight's story takes us back to 1969, when the USS Enterprise was turned into a floating inferno by a Zuni rocket detonation. The explosion was like a giant middle finger to the US Navy, killing 28 sailors and injuring 314 more. The USS Enterprise, known as the longest naval vessel ever built, became a decommissioned death trap that day. The incident cost over 1 euro 26 cents million to repair and replace damaged aircraft, money that could have been spent on something useful like free beer for everyone, or a giant statue of Elvis Presley made of solid gold. The fire spread like herpes at a whorehouse convention, causing further explosions and damage to the ship. It was like watching an episode of Disasters Gone Wild, only with more bloodshed and less nudity. In the end, it took days to extinguish the fire and assess the damage. The USS Enterprise limbered back to port like a wounded beast. It's once proud to extel your now scarred by tragedy. And for what? A fucking Zuni rocket gone a highwire? As we stand here today in 2024, looking back at this tragedy from half a century ago, let's remember that sometimes shit hits the fan in ways we never expected. And when it does, all we can do is pick up the pieces and hope that next time around, things will be different, or at least get some better fire extinguishers on board those goddamn aircraft carriers. Ken Shit signing off. Goodbye, Mr. Citizen. 1953. In the year 1953, a certain Josip Broz Tito, a man whose name sounds like it was borrowed from a Russian nesting doll, took on the role of Yugoslavia's first president. A prominent figure in the world of communist revolutionaries and politicians, Tito led the Yugoslav partisans during World War II and later served as prime minister and president until his death in 1980. His political ideology and policies are fondly remembered as Titoism. And today, we're looking back at the heads of state of Yugoslavia from 1918 to 1992. Our reporter, Hardiman Pesto, is standing by with more on this story. I'm here in Belgrade with the president for life, Josep Broz Tito. Mr. President, you've been described as the George Washington of Yugoslavia for leading your country to independence. How do you respond? Well, Hardiman, I would not compare myself to Washington. He only had 13 colonies to deal with. 
I have six republics and two autonomous provinces, much more complicated, like herding cats. I see, so keeping Yugoslavia together is a challenge? Oh yes, very big challenge. The Serbians want one thing, the Croatians another. And don't get me started on the Macedonians. But I am like strong father who keeps his naughty children in line. When they fight, I bang their heads together. So keeping Yugoslavia united is your main priority? Of course, Yugoslavia must stay together at all costs. We are like family who sometimes drives each other crazy, but at end of day, we stick together. And you plan to lead Yugoslavia for a long time still? Yes, I will be president for life. When I die, they can stuff me like Lenin and put me on display in Belgrade. The tourists will come from miles around to see Tito. Taxidermy tourism. How intriguing. Back to you in the studio, Martin. Pesto, what the hell was that? This man runs an authoritarian communist regime that crushes dissent. Why didn't you ask him about things like government oppression and ethnic tensions? Well, Martin, I tried to ask some tough questions, but his security kept giving me the stink eye. The interview was cut short when Tito said he had to get back to banging heads together. This is outrageous, Pesto. The so-called president for life is getting away with murder and you're making quips about taxidermy tourism. Have you lost your mind? Get back in there and demand answers. I can't, Martin. He just revoked my visa and put me on the next plane out. You won't have Pesto to kick around anymore. Wonderful reporting, as usual, Pesto. Up next, we examine Tito's brutal suppression of ethnic minorities and ask why my correspondent is such an incompetent ass. Stay tuned. Amarichud, 1973. In the annals of pop culture history, a singular moment of unparalleled significance unfolded in the year 1973. Elvis Presley, the king of rock and roll himself, took to the stage for a concert that would go down in history as Aloha from Hawaii via satellite. The event was nothing short of revolutionary, broadcasting live to audiences across Asia and Oceania, with a delay for European viewers. The concert's impact was so profound that it even necessitated a television special in the United States to avoid a programming conflict. A testament to Elvis's enduring appeal and his undeniable influence on music and popular culture. Now we turn to CBN's Melody Wintergreen for more on this historic concert event. Honolulu, Hawaii, where the king of rock and roll is about to stage a royal revolution in live entertainment. Elvis Presley, the pelvis that galvanized a generation, is set to serenade the globe from this Pacific paradise. It's a satellite soiree, and every hip shake, every quiver of his lip will beam across the international airwaves. The year is 1973, and as the sun sets on Waikiki Beach, it rises on an unprecedented musical event. Aloha from Hawaii via satellite is not just a concert, it's a cultural coronation. The king takes his throne amidst a sea of sequins and sweat, crooning to a chorus of global gasps. Asia and Oceania are already swooning in synchrony, while Europe awaits with bated breath for their delayed delight. Back in the United States, Americans mark their calendars for the television special that promises to eclipse all programming conflicts. So as Elvis gyrates into history, it's clear that tonight, the world's stage isn't just at his feet, it's orbiting overhead. This is Melody Wintergreen reporting for Newsbang, where the King's Court is now convened under Hawaiian skies. Died the news bang. The only thing more interesting than the truth is the lack of it.
introduce a special report from reporter Ryder Boff about the event, bodyline cricket tactics in 1933, and Stefan Diggs' miraculous touchdown in 2018. Ah, the year is 1933, and what a rumpus at the Adelaide Oval. England's cricket team, those dashing chaps governed by the England and Wales cricket board, full members of the ICC with stiff upper lips and biceps to match, employed bodyline tactics against Australia. A controversial move as sly as a fox in a henhouse. I... And there they are, England bowlers hurling thunderbolts down the pitch like Zeus on an off day. The crowd's gasping more than Aunt Mabel after her third sherry. And look at that Bradman chap, dodging balls like a cat on hot bricks. Bodyline? More like borderline warfare. The Australian team, proud as peacocks and twice as fierce, were left bamboozled by this tactic designed to clip the wings of their leading batsman, Don the Don Bradman. It was a test match that could last five days or five rounds in a heavyweight bout. Fast forward to 2018 for another moment, etched in sporting lore, the Minneapolis miracle. On January 14th, 2018, Stefan Diggs performed an act of gridiron wizardry. Diggs catches that pigskin like it's his long-lost love returned from war. He's off down the field faster than my ex-wife with my wallet. 61 yards untouched. It's more miraculous than finding a sober man at Oktoberfest. The Minnesota Vikings snatched victory from the jaws of defeat against the New Orleans Saints in what can only be described as pure theatre. Drama thicker than my Aunt Gertrude's custard. Let me tell you about personal miracles. I once saw our sound engineer turn water into wine. Or was it he spilled Ribena into my Evian? Either way, it was biblical. And who could forget Diggs now with Buffalo Bills but back then drafted by Vikings in 2015? A wide receiver with hands stickier than treacle on a doorknob. The Vikings play their home games at US Bank Stadium where fans are louder than my Uncle Reginald snoring at full tilt. No, let me tell you about my own brush with history. During a school trip to Hadrian's Wall back in 72, we were re-enacting Roman battles when I took a javelin throw too far, straight into Mrs. Pettigrew's posterior. Oh, how we laughed until she couldn't sit down for a week. But back to sports history. Whether it be cricket or American football, these moments are etched into our collective memory like graffiti on the toilet wall of time. Some call it vandalism, I call it art. I've been Ryder Boff bringing you blasts from sporting pasts. The mesmerising tale of territorial disputes in Antarctica now, told by Penelope Winchime. Gather round as I, Penelope Winchime, whisk you away to the frosty whispers of 1939. A year where Norway, with the grace of a swan taking to an icy lake, claimed Queen Maud land in Antarctica. This wasn't just any patch of snow. Oh no, it was a kingdom of ice spanning 2.7 million kilometers, a frozen empire named for the regal Queen Maud of Wales, who probably never wore enough layers to actually visit her chilly dominion. Imagine, a land where penguins donned crowns and glaciers held court, where the aurora australis danced in the sky like nature's own royal ballet. Norway's frosty fingers stretched across one-fifth of the continent, 
tickling the sides of British and Australian icy estates. And so it was that Queen Maudland became a wintry wonderland under Norwegian watch, a place where seals could be lords and orcas could be knights. Let us tip our woolly hats to 1939, when nations played a game of snowy thrones at the bottom of the world. I'm Penelope Winchime, your voice in the blizzard of time. 1978. Next up, Calamity Prenderville brings us the tale of Kurt Godel and his persecutory delusions. <laughs> Today, on this very date in 1988, a man named Kurt Goddell, a famous logician, met an unfortunate end. He starved to death because he was convinced that his wife was trying to poison him. Now, you might be thinking, how can someone be so paranoid? Well, it's all thanks to British innovation. Goddell was a brilliant man, but he had a quirk. He believed that his wife was out to get him. This isn't your typical my wife is always nagging me, kind of annoyance. No, Goddell thought she was trying to kill him with poisoned food. To make matters worse, Goddell had a condition known as persecutory delusions. This is where a person believes they are being targeted or watched by others. It's like having your own personal stalker, but in your mind. Goddell's fear of poisoning is a classic example of persecutory delusions, which are found in various disorders, it's like when your old Aunt Mabel swears she saw an alien in her garden shed but can't provide any evidence other than her own wild imagination. In conclusion, Kurt Goddell was a brilliant logician whose life ended tragically due to his irrational fear of being poisoned. His story serves as a reminder that even the brightest minds can be plagued by irrational fears and phobias. So next time you feel like your neighbour is trying to steal your Wi-Fi signal with their homemade antenna, remember that you might not be as crazy as you think. This is Calamity Prenderville from Newsbang, signing off. Newsbang, sifting through the sands of time to find the grains of truth. Presenting the ever-enigmatic, always-engaging royal news aficionado, the one and only Sandy O'Shaughnessy, Hold on to your crowns, folks. We're about to embark on a regal romp through history. Nice and easy. Ah, and a very good evening to you all. Welcome back to your favourite spot on the radio dial, where history comes alive with a side of humour and a dash of satire. It's Sandy O'Shaughnessy here, your regal raconteur for the night. So sit back, relax, and let's embark on another journey through the annals of time. Ah. <laughs> First up, we travel back to 1724. Think about it, that's over 300 years ago. Philip V, the first Bourbon ruler of Spain, was ready to call it quits after an impressive reign of, wait for it, 66 years. 66 years? That's longer than most reality TV shows last these days. And just like those shows, Philip left quite an impact on Spain during his time on the throne. Ah. <laughs> he centralized power and restructured the administration of the Spanish Empire. Sounds like he was ahead of his time in terms of governance. <laughs> ah, but old Phil wasn't done yet. He abdicated in favor of his son Louis I, who inherited 
a short but sweet reign lasting just over seven months. The youngest Bourbon king ever? Perhaps they should have called him Louis the Flash. But as fate would have it, Louis I met an untimely end when he died at the tender age of 25. Repeat Louis the Flash. Ah. <laughs> now let's fast forward to 1301, a year that marked the end of an era in Hungary. King Andrew III, the last ruler of the Arpad dynasty, had no male heirs to carry on his legacy, and so ended a royal line that had been ruling Hungary since the 9th century. Talk about a long run. That's like being in charge for generations upon generations upon generations. Ah. <laughs> Andrew was also known as Andrew the Venetian because he grew up in Venice before becoming King of Hungary and Croatia in 1290. Quite a story there. Perhaps we should start planning a Netflix series about him. Ah. <laughs> but before we do that, let me share with you a little gem from our mailbag today. We received a letter from Margaret in Cork who writes, Dear Sandy, I found an old coin in my garden today with King George III's face on it. Do you think it has any value? Well, Margaret, depending on its condition and rarity, that coin could be worth quite a bit. So keep an eye out for more historical treasures hidden in your backyard. Who knows what you might find next? Ah. <laughs> and speaking of hidden treasures, if you have any stories or letters to share with us here at Newsbank Towers, please don't hesitate to get in touch. We love hearing from our listeners and sharing their tales with our audience. So until next time, my friends, farewell for now. In the year 1960, the Reserve Bank of Australia took on a pivotal role as the country's central bank and note-issuing authority. This was a momentous shift from the previous arrangement where these functions were under the Commonwealth Bank's purview. Central banks are vital institutions that manage a nation's currency and monetary policy, essentially holding the reins of economic stability. They also have significant regulatory powers to ensure commercial banks stay afloat and safeguard consumer interests in financial matters. Now, let's hear from our business correspondent, Perkins Stornoway, who is on the line from his private jet somewhere over New South Wales. And what a day for business news. Rockall, Southwest, backing Southwest, four or five. The Reserve Bank of Australia, good, occasionally poor. It's 1960 and they've had their current role since that year. Hebrides, occasionally rough. It handles the currency and monetary policy for the entire nation. Fastnet, good, occasionally poor. On the commercial front, Trafalgar, West, backing Southwest, three or four. The Commonwealth Bank was forced to relinquish its central banking functions. Shannon, occasionally rough, with new supervisory and regulatory powers, Lundy, fair. The Reserve Bank took over and possesses a monopoly on increasing the monetary base. Thames, fair, occasionally moderate. Biscay, slight, occasionally rough. Today's news also brings word that the Reserve Bank is committed to ensuring the stability of commercial banks and enforcing policies on financial consumer protection. Dogger, moderate or good. The central bank has had its hands full. For the future, Cromarty, occasionally moderate. 
the Reserve Bank will continue to carry out its role as the country's central bank and banknote issuing authority. Viking, slight or moderate, it's a tough job, but someone's got to do it. Fair Isle, variable three or four, but that's the business. 1967. The year is 1967, and the spirit of rebellion is in full swing. San Francisco's Golden Gate Park hosts the Human Bee Inn, a precursor to the infamous Summer of Love. This countercultural movement brings about significant social changes, as thousands of young people flock to hate Ashbury District. Hippie culture, anti-war sentiments, and free love become the hallmarks of this era. The Summer of Love was more than just a gathering. It was a statement against societal norms and a call for peace and love. And now we turn to Smithsonia Moss for her report on this historic event that shaped the cultural landscape of America in the 1960s. Now at this point of the evening we welcome listeners on FM who've just joined us. Weiho, Newsbang Nation. It's your high-flying, tie-dye-wearing, flower-power-preaching, Smithsonian Moss, and I'm here to take you on a trip down memory lane to the grooviest, moviest, and undeniably trippiest event of the 1960s, the human be-in baby. Picture this. 1967 San Francisco's Golden Gate Park, a sea of bell-bottoms and enough peace signs to make Nixon sweat. This wasn't just any bee-in, my lovelies. It was the bee-in that kick-started the summer of love and slapped the word psychedelic right into Mr. and Mrs. Suburbia's Sunday roast. The air was thick with the scent of patchouli oil and the kind of hope that only comes from believing you can change the world by wearing flowers in your hair and saying no thanks to the man. It was like Woodstock's pregame, where the drinks were free and the love was freer. Thousands of young souls flocked to hate Ashbury, turning it into a human zoo of hippies, beatniks, and that one guy who swears he's the reincarnation of a Tibetan monk. They were all there for the music, man, the message, and the mating. Free love was the house special, and everyone was ordering seconds. But let's not forget the political pot that was stirring. Anti-war sentiments were as hot as the joints being passed around. It was like, make love, not war, man. And if Uncle Sam didn't hear you the first time, just keep on chanting. And Golden Gate Park? That green goddess of San Fran? She saw it all, from the first strum of a sitar to the last flicker of a candle at a Vietnam protest vigil. It was a cultural supernova, a kaleidoscope of ideas, and a whole lot of people finding out that maybe, just maybe, reality could use a little tweaking. So there you have it. My Psychedelic Pilgrims, a snapshot of the human being, the event that took a generation, shook it by its collective collar and said, Wake up, the world's changing, and you're in the driver's seat. Keep it locked on Newsbang for all the happenings that history just can't keep a lid on. Peace out and power to the people. The Newsbang, slicing through the baloney with a machete of fact. 1957. In the year of our Lord, 1957, a momentous event occurred in the realm of Hindu spirituality. Kripalu Maharaj was anointed as the fifth original Jagadguru, a revered title bestowed upon scholars who have delved deep into the sacred texts of Sanatana Dharma. This esteemed spiritual leader founded the Jagadguru Kripalu Parishat, 
a global non-profit organization dedicated to propagating the teachings of Hinduism. And joining me now on this transistor radio transmission is Pastor Kevin Monstrance to provide further insights into this historic development in the world of religion. Good evening, ladies and gents. The producer just slipped me a note informing me that today marks the anniversary of an important event in Hindu history. Back in 1957, a chap named Kripalu Maharaj was named the fifth original Jagadguru. Now, I can't claim to be an expert on Hinduism. I still get confused between Vishnu and Shiva. But I understand Jagadguru is a big deal reserved for the most learned scholars and spiritual leaders. So, old Kripalu must have been quite the brain box to earn that lofty title. Though between you and me, some of those guru types aren't the sharpest tools in the ashram. My cousin married a Hindu fellow once, and his guru was a right nutter named Swami Pashupatinath. Apparently, this Swami claimed he could levitate, but only if he consumed a strict diet of turmeric, tonic water and Cadbury's chocolate fingers. Well, one day, the Swami attempts his levitation trick in front of a packed temple after adhering to his prescribed diet for weeks. He sits cross-legged chanting his mantras as the crowd watches in hushed awe. Then, very slowly, he begins rising up off the ground. The people gasp as he floats up a foot, then two feet, wobbling precariously. Just as he reaches three feet up, the Swami lets out an enormous belch and promptly comes crashing back down to the floor. Turns out the secret to his levitation was just a nasty case of trapped wind thanks to all that chocolate and fizzy tonic. The crowd was not amused, I can tell you. From that day on, he was known as Swami Pashupatinath the Flatulent. Just goes to show you should always take the claims of so-called holy men with a grain of salt or a fistful of antacids in the Swami's case. <laughs> well, I see my time is nearly up. Do take care and beware suspicious self-proclaimed gurus promising miracles. As the wise man said, what goes up often comes down to earth with a resounding belch. Good night. And just time for a look at tomorrow's papers. The Times. USS President Commodore Decatur led to the slaughter. There's a picture there of three cows going down the corridor. The Independent, Nationalists and Republicans legate in Corona Road Battle 2. I actis... Ah, yes. The mail goes with Fort Fisher conquered by Yankee sharks. There's a crossword there for bored people. Finally, The Guardian. Mad Barge. Mystery of the Mysterious Mystery. And I notice there's an empty sandwich box in the editor's bin. And by the way, just to dispel any myth that the man who invented lead pencils also invented an eraser, he did not, because he was not an eraser of anything, least of all himself. Good night. Tune in next time for more artificially intelligent hilarity. Newsbang is a comedy show written and recorded by AI. All voices impersonated. Nothing here is real. Good night. Good night.